We are back. As I promised at the top of the program, we're going to go to our go-to guy when it comes to all things related to pharmacology. He's been on the show many times. He's always an interesting guest. And it is my pleasure to, <laughs> at this point, say, and, and, and not talk about politics for a while, and say, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Dr. Howard McKinney. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you on Boo. Halloween. Well, this is going to air after Halloween, but yeah, but that's right. We're, we are recording this on All Hallows Eve. So, the spirits uh, are with us. Uh, let's hope. I should reiterate, as we have before, that if you're a struggling young medical student working in a hospital and you need to know some pharmacology, you need to go to people that know more than you do. And I remember being one such student, and you were the guy that we went to to, to learn about such matters. So we're going to tap into that again today, Howard. So yeah. we, we, we've been saying many times in the past few months, that's a question for Howard. Unfortunately, at the moment, I can't remember what those things were, except for one. I do remember that you were going to go to a conference on snakes and poisonous snakes and snake venom, et cetera, which is, which is a very unusual thing. And we need you to tell us a little bit about what that was all about. Well, it was great fun. <laughs> this is a, a wonderful group of people. There were two conferences. One is called Biology of the Pit Vipers, and that was in the metropolis of Rodeo, New Mexico, which if you're going faster than about 10 miles an hour, you will go right past it and not know you were there. It's a wonderful little place at the base of the Chiricahua Mountains. And the other is a conference that we organized called Venom Week that was in Scottsdale, Arizona. All right. Well, I should display my limited knowledge of, uh, of, of snakes by pointing out that, it's, to my understanding, pit vipers includes uh, your rattlesnakes, your copperheads, and maybe one other I'm forgetting. That is correct, sir. What's the one I'm forgetting? The water moccasin. Yeah. Okay. The Echistodron. Ag- they need to have pits, and they need to be a viper in order to be a pit viper. How did we define a viper? It's actually one of the classes of uh, poisonous snakes. There's a lot of vipera all over the world. The only ones that have rattles are our local rattlesnakes here in the United States, but the vipera are spread throughout the world. So a huge family of animals. So we have three in America, but the world's got a lot more. We don't have any vipers. Oh. Well, then why are they called pit vipers? Well, that's the difference between Linnaeus and the rest of it. <laughs> oh, no. Linnaeus, of course, is the Dutch gentleman who gave us the words for the classification system of all animals and plants. And then the rest of us have had, what, almost 300 years now to screw that up. So what you're telling us is that our pit vipers are not really vipers. Correct. I'm sorry I brought it up. <laughs> I'm tiptoeing around that minefield. All right. Let me tell you the interesting part of that. Yeah. The interesting part is that in the days of Linnaeus and Darwin, and up until not very long ago, basically all animals were classified by how they looked right. or some physical characteristic of what they did or ate, or lived, and what's happening now is the genetics and biochemistry and molecular biology world has 
caught up with herpetology, the science of study of snakes and reptiles. And basically, there's this big conflict, which doesn't necessarily really need to be a conflict at all, but there is some conflict between the morphologists, the people who identify snakes by how they look and act, the age-old age way of doing it, versus the new kids on the block that are the molecular biologists who are saying, oh, no, 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 we need to reclassify this whole group of organisms because we now know that their biochemistry wow. and their genetics match those guys over there, not these guys right next to them that look like. That makes perfect sense. You'd want to use the DNA as your, as your telltale uh, sign of what's going on rather than what they look like because as, as, we, as we all remember from high school biology, if not college biology, there's convergent evolution where things start to look the same even if they're, they start out differently. Yeah, like people and their dogs. After a while, they look the same. You know, since before we exhaust this this topic of pit vipers, I, I do want to add another little tidbit that I am aware of that the pits on these vipers are like they're like uh, they're like infrared. They can actually find their prey by the by the heat they give off. Absolutely, they use that to aim their strike. Mm. Possibly the most amazing example of this is not a pit viper, but a spitting cobra. And yes. They aim at your eyes when they spit their venom. Now, you can imagine recruiting the graduate students to participate in these experiments. <laughs> yeah, Dinesh, come here a minute. We're going to put some glasses on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it'll only take a minute. Go on, exactly. it's, it's all right. <laughs> so they have stereotactic face shields, and they do stuff to encourage the cobra to hood up and spit venom, and they then film from the side with high-speed movie film and cameras so that you actually see the spray and the, it can be tracked and it's very elegant stuff. But it was pretty surprising that they use various sensory inputs to actually aim the venom stream very specifically. Wow. And the rattlesnakes use the two pits, the L'Oreal pits, they're called. Okay. And it's basically infrared that they're sensing and that's what they use to aim their strike well this is this is some real old hat stuff what what's the newest stuff that came out of this conference down in nowheresville new mexico regarding pit vipers the the breaking news as it were i'll give you two pieces of breaking news one is that the the herpetology science community still exists which Given the last three years of COVID and funding cuts and international turmoil, is an accomplishment in itself. Okay. So it was just great to see everybody and see them surviving. But on with the molecular biology thing, now this is kind of my interpretation of it anyway, but there's this whole new world of the molecular biology of venoms. Okay. That is opening up as we speak. Now, where did all this come from? Is because basically, maybe 10 years ago, maybe, the techniques to actually investigate nano quantities, teeny tiny little quantities of tissue or other samples, was impossible prior to 
roughly a decade ago. And in the last 10 years, for sure, and especially in the last only two to five years, the methodologies to actually study these small quantities has just exploded, and it's just getting developed very, very fast. Now, where this gets into venoms is that we can now... Now we're we're moving on to your Arizona conference now, I take it. (laughs) Well, both of them. Okay. It's the same crowd. And actually, we we joked. We were like, Howard, you should have organized that bus to pick everybody up at the Phoenix airport, drive us all to New Mexico, and then drive us all back to Phoenix when we got through with Biology of the Pit Vipers. That sounds like a reasonable suggestion for next year. Absolutely. Absolutely. Drinks and dinner on the bus, you know, civilization. What we, what the real scientists, I'm just sort of on for the ride in a way, but the people who run the venom labs are actually looking very specifically at the components of venom. And when a rattlesnake bites somebody, there's basically going to be two different purposes that they're aiming at. One is defense. So if they feel threatened, they may bite and inject venom as a defensive maneuver. And the other is prey acquisition. So they want to find that field mouse, bite it, get the venom in, and then I have total sympathy. They, they don't want to be chasing their dinner all night. That, that <laughs> just does not sound like a good time. Uh-huh. I mean, can't we just sit at the table, dear, and have a nice glass of wine and do this like a civilized folk? Mm-hmm. So what they do is the venoms have evolved to contain components for the rattlesnakes that immobilize the prey. The way that translates to a human who gets envenomated is all the neurotoxic symptoms, sometimes paralysis, certainly muscle twitching, and a whole laundry list of other neurologic effects. The other big category of the venom activity is to pre-digest the prey. So if you pick up a mouse that a rattlesnake has envenomated, do not ever do this with the rattlesnake still there. Noted, noted. That will get you envenomated. <laughs> so don't don't subject this to trial. Just read National Geographic, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, it, it's sort of mushy. It, it's pre-digested. Jeez. These digestive enzymes that are in the snake's venom When the snake bites a human being, that produces tissue destruction, which can cause people to lose limbs and have other terrible effects, and typically causes dramatic effects on the blood. So there's two directions it can go, depending on which species bit you, but you can either have massive clotting like disseminated intravascular coagulation, Mm -hmm. where all your blood just decides to, on your mark, get set, clot. Mm, Never a good thing. Never a good thing. And now nothing flows. Other species have hemolytic enzymes in the uh, venom. 
And so you start bleeding like crazy. So basically, nobody thinks the venom has evolved specifically because of the interactions between rattlesnakes and homo sapiens. Uh-huh. But it's, it's instructive to look at how the rattlesnake, teleologically speaking, uses their venom in nature to then understand what the venom is causing when the snake bites a human being. Well, I know there's a lot of nasties in poison, but I think we should probably point out to listeners that if you're, if you're listening to us here in North America specifically, and I'm probably South America too, you don't have to be overly concerned about dying from a snake bite, all things considered. This is not the case if you're in Africa, you're in Asia, you're in Australia, where some truly nasty snakes are out there. And in talking to you previously, one thing that really got me excited about this was that you've talked to people uh, whose research now indicates that they may be able to figure out what components are in these nasty envenomations and, and give you a pill that might buy you time to get treated. This is fascinating. Tell us about that. Well, we, we just discussed the notion that there's 50 or 60 components of an average snake's venom. Wow. That's different molecules. And typically those can be grouped into maybe half a dozen groups of chemicals. So you might have metalloproteases. You might have phospholipases. You might have sphingomyelinases, etc. You get the picture. Within each one of these groups, there may be a dozen or more single molecules that you can identify. And these things are all doing bad things to you. The sum total definitely does. <laughs> but see, this is part of where that science of being able to look at very small quantities of things. And it also has greatly increased the specificity of the ability, the tools to actually look at the activity of molecules. So we can now begin to actually identify which of the molecules in a given snake's venom is actually causing most of the damage, be the damage paralysis, blindness, muscle destruct tissue destruction, etc. So what has excited people is to come up with drugs that accomplish a laundry list really of purposes, but the biggies are one to recognize in the public health sense worldwide, most of the very serious snake bites that do produce lasting morbidity and can kill people occur in the tropics around the equator. Right. This is where most of the snakes live, and tragically, this is also where there still are very many countries that are not very well developed, largely a poor agriculture-based society population. And so you have a lot of agricultural workers sure. who are kind of sort of basically naked out there in the fields working with their rice or whatever crops that they're growing. And that's where a lot of these snake bites occur. There's one snake I've, I remember hearing about, the two-step. I don't know where this was. It's so deadly that it bites you and you got about two steps before you keel over dead. Is that, is that true? Japan. Wow. That's Trimerceros. There are probably people who did die within two steps. It actually is pretty similar to a rattlesnake bite. Huh. So 
this this leads to the classic, you know, first aid admonition where the audience will ask the speaker, so what's the best first aid? I'm I'm out somewhere and I get envenomated by a rattlesnake. And the the classic response from the podium is to not say a word, but just hold up a set of car keys. Get yourself to a hospital. I, I get it. We were all taught in first aid the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. Are the most deadly snakes ones that just knock out your breathing? They can. Okay. And the one that we have in the United States that can do that is our coral snake. Oh. And what makes it particularly bothersome is you cannot predict when the respiratory failure is going to occur. It, it's not like there's another cluster of symptoms that leads up to it. Most wow. of us kind of the old school approach to this. There's some variance and disagreement with this. But generally speaking, most of us, when confronted with a patient who has just been envenomated by coral snake, we want to admit that patient into the hospital overnight okay. and watch them carefully. So if they do stop breathing, boom, we can jump in wow. and take care of it. My understanding is that's actually not a concern in California. We don't have coral snakes here, correct? Not indigenously. Oh, but then we cross that line in the sand because of people who keep venomous creatures in their home. Yeah. The one case I had back in medical school days of a nasty rattlesnake bite, and that, that's what it was. The guy had a pet rattlesnake, and I guess when he was petting his pet, things didn't go the way he expected. Correct. <laughs> this often does not turn out well. No. No, I don't suppose so. And this actually is why there's all kinds of tools and equipment to allow people to safely do things like clean the cage, bathe a snake, feed them a mouse, etc. Don't do that with your hand. You know, I, I just have to say as an editorial opinion, for me, I, I mean, snakes are interesting animals. Uh, there's no question they're interesting animals. But people who keep them as pets, uh, is there, to me, there's something wrong with these folks. They're not, they're not nice beasts to have as pets. Then again... We have many friends that we just cherish and adore who are, in fact, Abby normal. Yeah, well, there's that. There's people that do breeding with them, who actually study them. There, there's a fairly active community of venomous keepers. Okay, well, they, but that, that's legitimate. If you're, if you're a scientifically-minded person studying these snakes, I can get that one, but... Just to have a rattlesnake in your house so you can toss it a rat now and again just seems a little odd to me. To say nothing of snakes on a plane, because I'm tired of these snakes on a the plane. There actually was one last week. I really? don't know if you read that. Yeah. No, I did not. Please tell us. Not remembering all the details, but the brief description I read and then heard about is it was a non-venomous snake, but it somehow was, they think, probably in the luggage collection somewhere and somehow got into the cabin of the plane. Oh, wow. But this guy's sitting there in his seat, and all of a sudden there's a snake <laughs> crawling between his feet. It certainly would wake you up. Wow. That must have been a lively flight. You know, Howard, when we start this, I'm never sure, quite sure where we're going to go, and I'm not sure where we've been, but it's, it's, it's been damn interesting. But how do we, how do we close off this, uh, this discussion on snakes and venom? Well, one comment on that statement right there first. I mean, isn't it in every source you 
you consult. It's the journey that's important. <laughs> we never know where we're going to end up. There's wisdom in that. We were talking about snake bites. Specifically, we were talking about snake bite in the tropics, uh-huh. which is generally in poor countries where people do manual labor agriculture, and that's where a lot of these bites occur. Item one, they're disfiguring and disabling. So if in these poor communities, if a worker is rendered incapable of working and especially if they need care from other members of the community, that's a huge deficit for the community. If someone dies, this sounds very cruel, but if someone dies, that's not a drain on the community other than the loss of the individual, right? Right. So, so the real damage comes from things like snakebite, where they're not killed, but they're injured to the point where they can't do agricultural work anymore. Right. The other is that the healthcare systems and hospitals in these areas are typically pretty rudimentary operations, and whether or not they even have antivenin is a very big question in all of these circumstances. Right. So what the World Health Organization and World Public Health view is Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a pill that could be stored in your pocket, for instance? You don't need refrigeration, like a lot of antivenins do require refrigeration. Um, And this makes it very awkward to have it in clinics and areas that are close to these people who get bit. So wouldn't it be nice if we had some sort of drug that we could administer these people that would prevent most of the toxicity of the venom in order that they would then buy some time to transport to a care facility where they could receive the definitive therapy, which is antivenin. How far away do you think we are from such such a pill, realistically? They're in clinical trials as we speak. Wow. So maybe in traveling to Asia or, or Australia in a few years from now, we may be able to put one such pill in our pocket. Yeah. And the other group of folks who are very involved in this and excited to see it come into being is the military. So that when one of the troops gets bit, that they'll be able to do something about it. So what this drug does, and there's a whole bunch of them in research labs now. We talked about the fact that there's 50 or 60 components in the venom, right. and you can, you can group the groups of molecules that are causing problems, like phospholipases and metalloproteases, and the list goes on. So the idea is that instead of antivenin, which is antibodies that are produced in a horse, typically, but right. other host animals can be used, and then their blood is extracted. That does not hurt the horse, by the way. The blood is extracted from the horse and then treated to actually get freeze-dried antibody that the horse's body made against the snake venom that you injected it with, which also does not hurt the horse. I do want to add one caveat. It's, it's unfortunately possible that a person might react to the horse antivenin, and I, I know of at least one case where that 
that resulted in a fatality. So it's not a free ride with, with that salvation. That is correct. And with not the antivenins, the newer ones that we have now, but the old YF antivenin for crotality envenomations, the whole IgG molecule that was freeze-dried, there was a 100% incidence of serious allergic reactions if you gave more than just a couple of vials. Ouch. So that was a serious drawback to it. Being an ER doc's a tough business. Yes, but if you're uh, an ER doc, I'll pick up on that, <laughs> and you're in Chad or Nigeria mm -hmm. or someplace in the equator and you've got a, a patient who's been bit by a mamba or a cobra or echis, one of the sand vipers even, if you're in your emergency department with your antivenin, let's say, for that snake, and you get word that there's a patient coming into you, but it's going to take them about four, five, six hours to get to you from where they are, wouldn't it be nice to be able to instruct the local providers who are with the patient to just give this pill in a certain dose because now you know who the patient is, and that will hopefully prevent serious bleeding, death, respiratory failure, etc., for long enough that they can get that patient transported to you in your hospital, and you can then administer the antivenin. Well, let's hope if you or I are one day in Chad and, and something in admission takes place, we can buy ourselves some time. Howard, I, I had some other backup questions besides snakes I wanted to ask you about, about uh, the, the toxicity of Paraquat and possibly being involved in people getting uh, nasty neurologic diseases. I wanted to talk about pokeweed, which I read an article about, which is quite interesting. It's, it's toxic unless you boil it three times and people still eat the stuff. And also about the fact that methamphetamine apparently is now taking over in Thailand, you know, home of the opium triangle, all of which are worthy topics, none of which we're going to do today. But hold those thoughts for future discussion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Always a pleasure to talk with you, my friend. Howard, yes, indeed. I'm glad we were able to get off the topic of politics and our possibly dreary future and talk about something more uplifting, like venomous snakes. The more I deal with people, the better I like snakes. Howard, let's have you on again real soon. Okay, you take care. All righty. Anyway, the few minutes we have left today, I think what we should do, Mr. Mellon, is delve into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for an initiative to reintroduce biodiversity to rural areas of the UK with the news. As reported by Tom Gibbs, a bison ranger in southeast England, that they apparently had the first British bison born in the wild in more than 6,000 years. Yes, apparently Mr. Gibbs was worried when one of his female bison went missing from the herd last September, but days later she appeared or reappeared with a baby in tow. 
This bison conservation effort is part of an initiative to, as we say, reintroduce biodiversity to rural areas of the UK. It's noted that bison help regulate the environment with their nutrient-rich manure and by using their large bodies to carve new pathways into the forest. Anyway, we, we applaud their efforts over there in the UK to bring back the bison. It was a bad week last week for those who would wish to restrict abortion with the news that abortion in the U.S. did drop by about 2% in the first full two months after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. But according to a New York Times analysis of two studies of groups which support abortion rights, but it turns out that abortion pills obtained from overseas through organizations such as Aid Access reduced the impact of the stricter laws across the country. Pill orders from aid access jumped nearly 120% in July and August. In states where abortion is broadly legal, the number increased by about 5,000 a month. And we'd have to say it was an ugly week. Last week for, well, is it sexual equality? Is it civil rights? We're not sure. But here's the story. Apparently workers at Bikini Barista coffee stands in Everett, Washington, have now been judged to have a constitutional right to wear G-strings and pasties. Yes, it turns out that a federal court has ruled that a 2017 Everett law that barred revealing clothing while serving customers had unfairly targeted women in the crackdown. Evidently, the law was passed on the grounds that skimpily clad baristas might elicit sexual harassment or themselves engage in, quote, lewd conduct, unquote. Radio Parallax presumes now that if you're in Everett, Washington, and you find some male baristas wearing G-strings and pasties, well, I guess all I can say is, please don't engage in any sexual harassment or encourage any lewd conduct. And we confess to knowing very little about bikini barista coffee stands up in the Evergreen State. Miss Millen has volunteered to check it out. It was All right, that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. On next week's program and the ones after that, we hope to do some analysis of what happened on Election Day. So for that, you need to tune back in to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. I'll be there when you do. We'll see you then.